prayers for the people. We will have a sung response to three sections of our prayer. I will say, Lord, in your mercy, and the choir will lead us, and I invite you to join with them as we say, respond with a Tese response, O oh Lord, hear my prayer, as you'll find it on the bulletin this morning. Shall we pray? Gracious God, on a day when we remember those who have died for their country in places of conflict, we pause to remember them and to give thanks that we live in peace and security. But we remember all who gave their lives in various conflicts in different parts of the world that there might be a better world, a safer world. And we remember all who still feel the pain of their loss. They shall not grow old as we who are left grow old. Age shall not weary them nor the years condemn. At the going down of the sun and in the morning, we shall remember them. Lord, in your mercy. God of peace, we pray that all their dreams and all their struggles of those who have died so that conflict would not end in frustration and great sadness, enable us to know something of your peace within the times in which we live. We pray for generations alive and those still to be born, that the day will soon approach when spears will be turned into pruning hooks and nations will learn war no more. And we pray that you will help us to work for a future worth dreaming about in our own communities, our country, and our world. Lord, in your mercy. Almighty God, we thank you that you have forgiven our sins. So strengthen us, we pray, by your Holy Spirit, and keep us in life eternal. Make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let us sow love. Where there is injury, pardon. Where there is doubt, faith. Where there is despair, hope. Where there is sadness, joy. And where there is darkness, light. Lord, in your mercy. God of healing grace, grant healing and wholeness to all who are suffering, 
those in our communities whom we know and work with, in the lives of our families, and individuals within our fellowship. We remember especially the family of Nadine Cook, that you may comfort them with your presence, to know that she rests in peace and will rise in glory. And all these prayers, prayers spoken but prayers uttered in the depth of our hearts, we offer in the name of our Savior Jesus Christ, who taught us with boldness to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory. Amen. I have to confess that at times I like to see a movie that doesn't have a clear sense of closure, that the final ending is not ultimately clear. There's no closing chapter, an open-ended situation where you can begin to imagine what happens in the future. Now, I know that not everybody likes that, 
And if you go to see the new James Bond movie, you won't be disappointed because there's a clear closure at the end of it. But life doesn't always have a happy ending. The stories of our life don't always end with happy ever after stories. The life of discipleship is often skewed with contradictions, inconsistencies. Faith and hope can appear to leave us alone in our experience of God. As Chris was suggesting to us in the children's sermon, there are times when we pray and we pray and we pray and the ringing is not answered. As well as many expressions of praise and thanksgiving and adoration that we find within the Psalms, there are many questions directed towards God in what are called the Psalms of Lament. Why have you allowed this? When are you going to do something about it? Why have you forgotten us? Indeed, where are you? It's worth pointing out that there are more Psalms of Lament in the whole of the Psalter than there are Psalms of Thanksgiving and Praise. Celebrating God's love, confessing our sin, and complaining go hand in hand in the biblical text. Now, normally, when you look at the Psalms of Lament, you have a question, or more than one question, but you normally have some kind of expression of praise and thanksgiving that brings at the end of the psalm some kind of resolution. But there is one psalm that doesn't do that, and it's Psalm 88 a psalm that speaks to us of the silence of God. It's not my favorite psalm. I don't have it on some kind of sheet of paper stuck to my computer screen. I don't think I've read it all that number of times. I've read it on some occasions. It can be quite depressing, as you probably realized when I read it to you this morning. But I'm glad it's there. I'm glad it's there for at least one person in the Psalter knew what it was to go through prayer and not to hear the answer of God. This may not be you this morning. I remember when I was at theological college, a sermon that I heard within chapel began in an unusual way. When Dr. Tidball said, this may not be a sermon for you at this moment in time, but it may be that God will remind you of this somewhere down the road. I've remembered that because it was perhaps an unusual way to start a sermon, but also actually because the message he preached that day didn't seem to be relevant at that moment in time. But there have been later times when I felt that God has spoken through it. So I'm thankful for Haman the Ezraite, whom you perhaps don't know so well as other writers of the Psalms, because he's there. He's there walking in the darkness and the silence and enabling us to know that at least one person in the Psalms knows exactly how we feel. When John Calvin began his commentary on the Psalms, he opened with it by saying, the Psalms is an anatomy of all the parts of the soul. Psalm 88 is a raw cry to God from one who is deep in the darks of suffering. There's a tension in this Psalm between somebody who has witnessed God's salvation in the past who has known the love of God for him, who has prayed and the prayers have been answered, but now, now there is only silence. Walter Brueggemann, one of my favorite commentators on Hebrew scripture says, the silence can finally lead to less energetic, almost phlegmatic obedience, or it can stand, it can 
on this occasion evokes strident protest against God. Such melancholy is unrepresentative of Israel's faith, but it is there. And the psalmist uses word upon word, phrase upon phrase, to build up his case against God. He says, you've made me to sit in Sheol, the pit, no help, among the dead, slain, remember no more, cut off, dark and deep. Could it get any worse? And then he suggests that God has put him there. Your wrath, you overwhelm me, you have caused, you have made me to be here. This is audacious speaking. This is prayer that is crying out to God and asking him, why, where, when? If we're honest, however, we've kind of excised this language from our liturgical worship and even our expressions of faith. And what makes it worse is that there's no answer to this prayer. We're ringing the number. We hope we've got the right number, but there's no answer. This is a cause for rage and indignation. Here Israel seeks to convince God to do something. The psalmist says, now if you don't answer me, your reputation is going to go down and people are not going to praise you anymore. So isn't that a good reason to to answer me? The psalmist will not quit lamenting. She will not submissively quit in stoic resignation. This is high energy protest. One former president of a theological college in Glasgow who wrote a book on this psalm a great encouragement to me in my own life, he said, it is remarkable that Israel's rage against God does not drive Israel away. They keep on praying. This psalm is called a mascal, which some people suggest means that it's a psalm to teach us a particular thing. But what I find fascinating is the person who wrote it, Heman the Ezraite, You know who he was? Well, according to the Old Testament, he was a close companion of David. He, along with David, was one of the pioneers of the choir of the Korahites in the temple of God. This guy put together a choir that gave you a number of the Psalms, and that lets us know that no matter how dark was the time in his life, he was somebody who trusted God, who loved the worship of God, who loved the Lord's people, and wanted to sense God's presence with him. It reminds me that everybody who leads worship, everybody who preaches, everybody who pastors, everybody who sings in the choir even, (laughs) doesn't have it all together. Did you know that? We don't have it all together. We all have moments when we wonder, where is God? Perhaps we need to forget something of the reasoned civility of our culture when we come in prayer to God. You know, when somebody meets you and says, how are you? And you say, I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. And we pass on. Civility. There are times when we need to abandon civility in the presence of God to express exactly how we're feeling. There are no gotcha prayers with God. He receives them all. He hears us. I think one of the most significant aspects of this psalm is that it is voiced in the context of worship. The psalmist is convinced that God receives prayer, is pleased by prayer, and will accept us whether we are blessed or broken. You ask me, well, 
is there any hope in this psalm? <laughs> I think there is. You've got to really search deeply for it, however. I think one aspect of hope is the way in which the psalm begins. The very first psalm. The psalmist begins by addressing God in this way. O God, O Lord, God of my salvation. This is somebody who in the midst of silence and protest still is convinced that God is there, that God is his Lord, is the one who has made covenant promises towards him, a God who will not ultimately abandon him. God is his only help and hope. The second note of hope, I think, is that he still wants to praise God despite all that's happening to him. Even if he's having a hard time, he still prays. Even though there's no answer, he still dials the number. When life is tough, when God seems to be silent, I say to myself, don't stop praying. Now that is not meant to sound like a cliche. It's not. Sometimes all we have is prayer. Even when the words seem to bounce back from the ceiling. One 17th century Puritan writer by the name of Thomas Goodwin, he says, sue God for his promises. Come into the presence of God. Remind God of who he is. Remind God of what he's promised. Remind God that he shouldn't abandon us. Sue him. <laughs> Get a class action suit in your prayer against God. That's what lament is. That's what crying out is all about. As I said, Calvin says, all parts of the soul, all parts of the self, all parts of the world in prayer are given over to the mystery of God. One of the leading Baptist preachers, pastors in London in the latter half of the 19th century was a man by the name of Charles Spurgeon. Spurgeon was very successful in his ministry. He was preaching regularly to several thousands of people morning and evening, morning and evening. But every winter, he took off from London, not literally, they didn't have planes then, but he went to the south of France to Mentone to recover from what he experienced as the absence, the silence of God in his life. I think of William Cooper, the poet, the hymn writer, great friend of John Newton, who often went to Newton's rectory to recover from his sense of the absence of God. Where is the blessedness I knew, he once wrote, when first I saw the Lord? Where is that soul-refreshing view of Jesus and his love? There are times when Good Friday is not followed quickly by Easter Sunday because there's Holy Saturday that intervenes. There's the silence of waiting, the silence of watching, the silence of asking questions. I'm grateful that our Lord encountered that silence on our behalf. In the Garden of Gethsemane, in agony, he cries out three times, let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. Let this cup pass from me. And he has met, as far as we know, with silence. He leaves the garden to go to the darkness 
of Golgotha. You have caused friend and neighbor to shun me. My companions are in darkness. But our God is a compelling match for the emotional extremity of our life in this world. The wonder of God's grace is that his grace matches our times of elation as well as our times of anguish. He is with us, we believe, because he has said, never will I leave you. Never, never will I forsake you. Will you pray with me? The Lord is my shepherd. Though I walk through the valley, the Lord is my shepherd. Grant us grace to trust in that, even when we cannot see that it is so. Through Jesus Christ our Lord we pray. Amen. Our hymn of response this morning is number 405, Saviour like a shepherd lead us. <laughs> Thank you. 
Please pray with me. Gracious God, how many times have we gone through a day and thought, where are you? Just be stopped by your silence to ask and sometimes wonder where you are. To question, perhaps, how we have been blessed and what you have given. Today, may we stop and just think about all the things you have given us each and every day. To stop and think about the small things, the big things, the places where you have touched our lives. A place to worship, a place to gather as a family of faith. As we reflect on those things, may we think about what we now give back. How you will take these offerings that we give of our time, of our talents, of our resources, that you will now take them and bless them. Bless them so that all people will know of your love as we know of your love, that all people will be reminded of that love, and that your kingdom will continue to grow so that all people will feel welcome in this community of faith. Bless these offerings at this time and thank you for your gifts and your love. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.
do hope you'll wait and have some lemonade and cookies in the narthax and let us speak to one another there. This evening, uh, uh, Chris is going to be speaking about his trip to Nicaragua at 5 p.m. and then the evening service at 6 p.m. in Foster Auditorium. Wednesday night, supper as normal, and then I'm going to be speaking about my personal pilgrimage. Now that you've called me to be your pastor of preaching and teaching, maybe I can tell you a little bit more about myself, and then you can take another vote about whether you want me or not. Anyway. (laughs) Next Sunday is the installation service for both Tim and myself, and Marlon's going to come and say a little bit about that before we close. You want us to sit down, Marlon? Yeah, sit down. Yeah. First of all, I will say another vote will not be taken. Um, we're stuck with Ken. We're not changing our minds. That was, a, and, and Ken doesn't normally say this, but I feel the need to say, Ken, that was a beautiful sermon today. Every time I listen to you speak, I'm aware of how blessed this church is. We were searching for a pastor and we were blessed to find you and I hope you feel blessed to find us. Next Sunday is a very special worship service for our church. We're installing Dr. Ken Roxborough as our preaching teaching pastor as well as installing or reaffirming Dr. Tim Kelly as our pastor for congregational ministries. It's been a long year and a half for our church with a lot of of fear and uncertainty that um, that I think we all felt when Steve announced his retirement. In a way, it's a little like praying and feeling like God is being silent when you're asking him for something. We were all, I think, shocked and afraid at that time. And when he retired, I remember telling you guys, to everything there's a beginning and an ending. There can be no true ending that's not in the nature of a beginning. And here we are, a year and a half later, with a beginning on our hands. God had his hand on this church, leading and guiding us, I believe, to where he wanted us to be. And I believe he wants us to be here serving with Ken and Tim. I believe he wants our ministry to the lost, to the abandoned, and to the hurting to continue. And I believe that ministry will continue with our our new pastors. So I hope each of you